0: Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And we are the Prehistory Guys.
1: Hang on, what was that? The Prehistory Guys? Yep, Prehistory Guys.
0: Not standing with stones then? Yeah, Prehistory Guys. This is the Prehistory Guys podcast now. Okay. Oh, come on, you're having a laugh. We've been talking about this for months. Yeah, I know really, but I was thinking about our good listeners. You have a point. Let's explain later, shall we? Yeah, all right, let's back to the intro then. So, welcome to the first Prehistory Guys monthly podcast, which is actually the Standing with Stones podcast number 19 for October 2019. And this month, we're having a little look at how our understanding of timelines can have such a huge impact on the way we perceive certain sites and the lives of the
1: people who built them. And as always, these things tend to raise more questions than answers and prove that we really can't take anything for granted. Yeah, sometimes it's
0: just the way that you look at things that provide the most exciting changes in the way we understand things.
1: Yeah, joining the dots is one of the most fascinating exercises when you really get into details.
0: But all that's to come later. Let's get on with the show. Right, so let's deal with the elephant in the
1: room. Okay? <laughs> Prehistory guys. What's that about? Well, I think uh, it's it's what it says on the tin, isn't it? I mean, with all the stuff that we've been doing for so long now, how often are we actually talking about stones?
0: Yeah, if you add them up, not that often, not in this podcast, anyway. We've uh, sort of broadened our remit tremendously beyond uh, megalith building. Uh, and uh, today's episode is uh, no exception, is it, really? <laughs> but we just thought, yeah. as far as new people uh, discovering our podcast, it does not do what it says on the tin, although we're still centred around the megalithic and we still do the Stones stuff. Um, standing with Stones, while it's a great title for a film, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't exactly uh, tell you much about what we're really up to. So we just thought, yeah, the prehistory guys... Helps a, helps a bit in that direction, don't you think? I I think
1: it's uh, it, it's a good move, not least of all because the more certainly with technology, you know, you look at the way technology has been romping forwards, and so we've been looking at uh, what isotopes have been telling us about people. You know, we're no longer looking at the yeah. sites that they left behind we're really looking at people's lives and that's a really uh, good point so it, yeah you know, it just it does make a very big difference
0: so fantastic so hope you approve hope you understand hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the <laughs> podcast i know how people uh-huh. love change but uh, we're excited by the possibilities it brings anyway so Also, before we start, can we do a big shout out for our Patreon supporters?
1: Indeed, we must.
0: I don't know if you know, but of course, uh, this podcast and the films we make are supported by um, monthly donations from our Patreon supporters. And, you know, every time I think about it, every time I go on Patreon, I see the you know the great people that are following us and have have made a commitment to supporting us. Um, it just blows my mind, really. I don't know about you, Rupert, but
1: I, I feel exactly it, the same. I I yeah. I think it's uh, apart from it's such an affirmation. You know, when uh, when people uh, like what you do enough to actually put their hands in their pockets and help you keep making it, uh, it it's uh, yes, it moves me. So, chaps of Patreon, uh, if you're listening,
0: please allow us to... uh, sing your praises and uh, <laughs> express our, our deep uh, gratitude as ever. Yes. And um, if you're not yet one of our Patreon supporters and would like to be and uh, get early access to some of our uh, podcast specials, exclusive access to uh, oh, this would be a new thing—a live video chat we've coming up every month. Yes. Uh, movies, Standing with Stones movies and uh, behind the scenes content. Just hop over to Patreon.com/slash. The prehistory guys for more info. There, there that's you that. Then, any other stuff we're doing that folks might uh, be interested to know about coming up? Well, I can think of one thing.
1: Yeah. Well, yes, uh, we have uh, coming up uh, at the uh, uh, is it the ninth of November? We are. It is the ninth of November. Yeah, 9th of November. We're at the uh, sunrise over the stones. It is sunrise, isn't it? Not sunset. Sunrise no, over the stones. No, that sunset wouldn't be good over the stones.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, it'd be pretty, but, but it, it sort of wouldn't ring quite right, would it? Yeah. It is. This is, sun- an, this is an optimistic conference. That's I think. true. That's true. <laughs> it is the sunrise over <laughs> the stones
1: conference <laughs> at uh, at Bournemouth University, and uh, it's uh, there. There are some wonderful archaeologists going to be there talking about uh, their work from the last. Uh, well, I think it's probably more than the last year, actually. But yeah, it's um, a stellar lineup, isn't it? It really is. Yes, there's some wonderful people there. Um, Tim Darvel, yeah. of course. The um,
0: ubiquitous Tim Darville. Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> I think we really should start calling him that, the ubiquitous <laughs> Tim Darvel. Um, and uh, uh, Josh, Josh Pollard, and is... Mike
0: Parker Pearson. Yes. Um, uh, Julian Richards. Alison Sheridan, and uh, and many more. Yes, right. yeah. so yeah.
1: hopefully we'll bring you some news uh, from that.
0: Yeah, hopefully.
1: Some of you might even be
0: there. Uh, I do believe it is sold out, would you believe? Yeah. Um, so I don't think uh, any tickets are available, but um, if any of you, our followers, are there, please make yourselves known to us. Mm. Um, yay. So that's that. We're there in November, and we'll be reporting back. Yes, and just one last thing before we start proper. Did you know, Rupert, that we're 150 short of 5,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel? I did not. No, that's a good healthy number. So this is a roundabout way of saying, if you're not yet one of our subscribers on YouTube, why not hop over there to our YouTube channel, um, com slash c letter c slash the prehistory guys is the place to go um, yeah and uh, and subscribe I don't know if we get any perks at um, when we get to five thousand subscribers you think I think we you do when we get to ten thousand subscribers I think they send us stuff and give us extra stuff do they so yeah 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 So, you know, only another 5,150 to go to that. But, um, yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) There you go, folks. Tell your friends. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, less about us. So off we go with pod number 19.
1: What, what on earth could be pushing back the boundaries this month, Rupert? Well, wait for it. It is yet another astonishing discovery from the Denisova cave in Siberia. What? That's
0: ridiculous! <laughs> you wait forty thousand years, and then a load of astonishing discoveries all turn up
1: at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost actually, this is uh, this is actually from ninety thousand years ago. And what I, I know, and it comes from that tiny fragment of bone that was discovered in the Denisova Cave back in two thousand and twelve.
0: What you you mean, they've got even more stuff out of that little piece of bone, that That one tiny piece
1: of bone. bone, Yeah, brace yourself. So, the the bone was originally discovered by the team of Russian archaeologists, and it was established that the bone came from a young girl who was about 13 years old when she died, 90,000 years ago. Well, then the bone was handed over to a group of researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, in Germany. Well, they did the full number on her genome and discovered that she was the daughter to a Denisovan father and a Neanderthal mother. Oh, good grief. I know, I know. She is the first Neanderthal-Denisovan hybrid ever found. Goodness uh, gracious. And the, the thing is, it was known that Denisovans separated from Neanderthals uh, way back, about 400,000 years ago. This is I'm talking about in, in lineage here as a species, yeah, if you like. Um, but even though they separated from the point of view of genetic uh, lineage, they clearly still interbred. And apparently a lot more than anyone had thought. So her closer scrutiny revealed other surprises. Her mother was more closely related to the Neanderthals who came from Western Europe, much closer than those who were already living in the Denisovan cave. Uh, right. and, and also that her Denisovan father had at least one Neanderthal ancestor in his family history, showing that the interbreeding was far from unusual. Uh,
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's mind-bending, but of course it is possible that it was actually
1: bordering on the normal. Uh, Do you know what? Uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, And after all, they would have been totally unaware that they were technically different subspecies. Even if they looked a bit different, you know, they wouldn't have known they were different. Um, but, you know, a, a, another interesting detail is that yeah. the research has shown that Denisovans mated with modern humans in two distinct periods, if that's the right word to use. Right. Um, so basically researchers, this is so clever, researchers took the Denisovan girls' sequenced genome. and compared it with thousands of whole genomes from around the world. So they found that the most closely related, we're talking about living people here, they compared the uh, two living people's genomes, and they found that the most closely related were in the east, over in Oceania, most significantly in Papua. Okay, And then they found different genomes, genetic links with people from China and Japan. So basically the modern genomes show quite different inherited sequences, showing that they interbred in different periods. Um, Not surprisingly, uh, that's all quite complicated (laughs) (laughs) and not a thing for a single podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, probably not. It's probably not even... For my brain to take in, (laughs) let alone sort of regurgitate it for our dear listeners. But um, we should also probably flag up that all this research is based on the single Denisovan genome we have. So much of this understanding may change as more specimens come to light.
1: So true so very very true it's all very exciting yes
0: so so yeah, that's uh, probably enough of that but yeah but tune in next month for the latest episode of <laughs> the bone in the cave the <laughs> finger that just keeps on giving <laughs> it's true <laughs> <laughs> oh lord anyway um yeah should we move on to
1: the news So, on to the news. What have you got, Michael?
0: Well, a remarkable and potentially far-reaching discovery on the Isle of Arran, off the west coast of Scotland. Now, this, once again, is something that would have been impossible to know, even just 10 years ago, and comes from LiDAR technology. For any listeners who don't know, LiDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging, a technique where lasers are used to detect anomalies on the ground.
1: Go on then, what's showing up on Aaron?
0: Well, believe it or not, the aerial LIDAR scans have revealed a thousand... Get that a thousand previously <laughs> unknown sites around. On
1: well, hang on, one set of aerial reconnaissance scans, and they found a thousand sites. That's ridiculous. A thousand sites. Well, it's
0: amazing, isn't it? Um, apparently that doubles the previously known number of of sites. You know, in one fell swoop. Okay. I mean, obviously they aren't all prehistoric sites. Many of the sites could be anything from medieval farms to simple you know just solitary dwellings but many of them are definitely neolithic and uh, very rare for western scotland A cursus has shown up as well oh now that's exciting yes we've got a we've got a thing about cursus we (laughs) We do it'll be interesting to see the topography around that Certainly, yeah. But obviously, this has only just been published and uh, they've got a wealth of data to work through. So definitely another Watch This Space item. You know what, we should we should definitely go to Aaron sometime. I'd I'd love to see the Macri Moore standing stands. Apparently. Yes. They're quite something. Yeah. Yes. I bet we'd have a lot to say
1: about um, about them. Yeah. Anyway, it would be a good adventure. It would. In fact, we should uh, make a point of taking in all the Scottish islands that have passed us by so far. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: no, I can see that one coming along.
1: We could be quite a while out there though, couldn't we?:
0: Excellent. Anyway, have you got any news? Have you got any news? Oh, I do. Well,
1: this one is this one is different. it's okay. uh, different. <laughs> a team from the University of Bristol have come up with the first evidence to show that Neolithic and Bronze Age children were weaned using ceramic baby bottles. Oh, that's too cute. (laughs) How do we know that they're baby bottles, though? Well, that's a good question. Uh, No one wanted to make definitive statements before, because previous specimens uh, were found out of context, and the thinking was that they could just as easily have been for nursing the sick of any age well that's a fair point mm. well see the bottles are always small uh, between two and four inches in diameter or five to ten centimeters uh, and they're often modeled in the shapes of animals well that's a giveaway isn't it uh, well, <laughs> and the thing is they <laughs> always have particularly narrow spouts Uh, So the team took a few Bronze Age examples from Bavaria that were found in the graves of very young infants.
0: Make it sound like that's an easy thing to do, but, you know, blimey, infant graves are rare enough to begin with, aren't they?
1: absolutely, absolutely. And they tested the insides to find out what they had contained. And what do you know? Sheep, goat and cow's milk. So there seems little doubt that these were for weaning children. And what makes this so groundbreaking is that earlier isotopic evidence from the bones of children had shown that they were weaned, but this is the first time that they've been able to show exactly what they were being fed. You know what? It amazes me
0: how much we're able to learn now about how ancient lives were lived, yeah? Not to mention how deaths were died. <laughs> <laughs> what does, have you does got? That, does that make sense?
1: <laughs> yes. <Like laughs> well, it, it does.
0: It's, it's, uh, yeah, just a, an extraordinary piece of research I've got from archaeologists from the Mecklenburg-Vorpommern Department of Historic Preservation and the University of Greifswald. It's a battlefield on the River Tillense in Germany. But what we are learning is that this runs far deeper than just being the site of a 3,000-year-old battle. It all kicked off back in 1996 when somebody found an arm bone with a flint arrow tip embedded in it. But other items began being found, so a major excavation was undertaken which ran from 2009 to 2015. A huge number of bones were found, horse bones as well, and all sorts of weapons, blades, clubs, axes, and arrows. The thing is that along a three-kilometre stretch of the river, carbon dating on all the bones showed them to be the same age, 1250 BC, the inference being that they're all related to the same event. That is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the the research is still very much ongoing, but they've been able to show that all this centred around a narrow crossing point on the River to Even back then, it was a river valley with very swampy ground. There was a timber and stone structure found in the water, which was found to be quite a lot older, but the implication is that uh, this could have been an important crossing point for centuries. And the battle centred here, but then fighting spilled out all along the banks. From the number of bones they've found, I mean, for example, one 12 square metre excavated section contained 20 skulls. So extrapolating from the known wow. average dead or surviving fighters from the battle, they estimate the number of warriors at the battle ran into the thousands. And 27% of the bones examined showed signs of healing from previous injuries. And And strontium analysis revealed that the dead weren't just locals. Many came from hundreds of kilometers away. Implication being that these were professional fighters, not just locals fighting
1: for their corner. So, so hang on, so this is the earliest actual evidence for a large-scale battle in Northern Europe? Pretty much seems that way, and
0: it opens up another Pandora's box of questions because no large settlement has ever been found in this region, so, you know, what, they, what were they fighting over? Were they fighting to take control of the crossing? Was one army trying to invade the other's territory?
1: God, it's a belter, isn't it?
0: Uh, tell me about it. And another interesting aspect is because... There had never been any evidence for war or large-scale fighting. Many items, like axes found in burials, had always been interpreted as items of prestige or power. Now, as a result of all these finds, they're reassessing that kind of interpretation. It's, it seems far more likely that they were warriors buried
1: with their own weapons. So, really, with all the different types of research and analysis going on, it could be revealing new findings for ages.
0: Well, you know, one of the really unique finds was what they think was a, a kind of toolkit, um, or certainly one individual's personal possessions. Uh, the box or bag containing the items had rotted away completely, but but it, but it contained a knife and all, a chisel, loads of scraps of bronze, which uh, could
1: obviously be melted down. Well, or, or maybe bronze scraps were a form of currency. I mean, they would have been useful almost anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, to, to your to your point, you know, about uh, ongoing research. Apparently, all this is coming out from a tiny area of the of of what they of what there is available to excavate. So, you know, what they're going to find uh, if they can excavate the rest of the area, and uh, you know, b- because they're estimating the number of dead in this site is around about seven hundred and fifty <laughs> from the from the you know the few they they've they've. Uh, which um, they've only covered ten percent of the area, so right. you know all their extrapolations, all their um, um, assessments, you know, are, are based on a on a fraction. Of what's available? So goodness knows what else is going to come out of the ground. Well, wow,
1: that really is exciting. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So another another watch of this space excavation. <laughs> <I reckon. laughs> yes, yeah, so, there are so many. <laughs> Fantastic. Yay! Yeah. Oh, I tell you what though. One thing, talking of battles, uh, only is something that um, came on, uh, across my radar recently, that uh, the earliest known, do you know where the earliest known um, battle in uh, Britain is uh, was? Oh, Hill? Crickley Hill? That's, Crickley Hill. That's the one. Um, I think, you know, it's had a couple of TV slots on... Uh, I think uh, I think Neil Oliver's been been there and uh, did, did something on it, but um, no. I, can I recommend that people take a visit there? There's a story there to be told, and it's absolutely spectacular. I can mm. really understand why there was a flipping battle there. It's a you know extraordinary place. You get real sense of territory up there. Um, you know the 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 the, uh, the uh, it's right on the Cotswold escarpment. And um, that particular position would have been so important. You have to visit, you have to see what it's like there to understand it. But uh, take my word, um, it's, a, it's a National Trust um, property, uh, country park. Oh, is it? Um, go up there, if only for the views. It's spectacular. And there's the remains, of course, of a causewayed enclosure up there and an Iron Age um, battlements.
1: You like a course weight enclosure,
0: hopefully. You know what? We should do something up there ourselves. We, we should,
1: should do, that. yeah. We yeah. should do, really. Yeah,
0: cool. Onward, mm. onward, onward, onward. So that brings us to the, the main topic of this month's podcast, and um. Time right now as we're recording, I don't think we we haven't really decided what the title of the podcast
1: will be. No, we haven't. I'm I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what I've got written on my um, notes here. Of uh, it actually <laughs> says WTF, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've I've come up with
0: sort of three that may help point in the right kind of direction. You know, and frame what we what we're trying to say. Um, the ancient landscape lies. Yes, that's not bad. The Great Megalithic Deception. I like that. Misled by the stones. That is true. <laughs> that's certainly true. You see where we're going with this, kind mm. of. Um, yeah, and, and by the time you're hearing this, you'll you'll know what we chose because the title will be up there, <laughs> and uh, what I'm saying now will be completely redundant. Yes, but the point is, a few weeks ago, we were in the middle of a wonderful tour. We had eight participants on our tour, taking them down from Orkney to Stonehenge. I remember saying to you, Rupert, what should we do? Or you saying to me, what should we do to, we've got the next month's podcast to do. What will that be about? I said, relax, relax. By the time <laughs> you finish this tour, we'll know exactly what it's going to be, <laughs> yes. to be because stuff will come up. We can't go the you know the thousand miles from uh, Tomb of the Eagles down to um, uh, West Kennet Long Barrow without something you know <laughs> our brains taking a little turn of something and you know a few light bulb moments. And did the waters and, clear? I,
1: no, they did not.
0: Well, actually, no. I think we've come up with something pretty profound, actually, and it's something yeah. you know that, that uh, revealed itself as we uh, as we travelled those thousand miles. Mm. I remember. I'll 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 try and sort of encapsulate it this way. I remember um, early on on the tour, I was saying to our lovely guests, saying you know trying to give them a sort of framework with, to 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 carry as we travel down the country think in terms of um following uh, grooved wear culture down the country you know, because essentially that's the way the culture d- developed mm-hmm. however and it, you know it was a, it was a reasonable thing to say it it you know helped create a bit of a story about, uh, about the journey but in reality Visiting the sites that we did visit, and in the order that we did them in, um we reckon that our guests really should have been suffering from time traveling whiplash by the time <laughs> <we came laughs> to be. Be. yeah and end of it because uh, if we were really zipping backwards and forwards in time um associated with the monuments we'd be visiting we'd be we'd have been all over the place yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not on a nice sort of linear journey, but um, serious whiplash would have been um, experienced.
1: Yes, it's absolutely true. I mean, we uh, we are faced with this. In fact, you made the analogy, didn't you, about looking through a lens? Really, that that in terms of the time, when we yeah. look at uh, megalithic sites—not just megalithic, but you know whatever the prehistoric sites might be—we see them all in a modern context, and. We lose all sight of, or all sense of the hundreds and maybe even thousands of years that separate the people that build them.
0: That's right. I mean, we see them all at once. Hmm. Of course we do. Um, um, as In the same way that a, a, a telescope or a telephoto lens or w- what have you um, sort of makes things appear closer together. Hmm. Um, you know, when we look at the megalithic landscape, it completely removes the hundreds and, as you say, sometimes thousands of years, but that are in reality between one monument and another.
1: It is—it's very true, and I think—I mean, it was interesting um, actually. For <laughs> I don't know if this is a kind of slap in the face to the people who weren't on it, really, but uh, but <laughs> one of the uh, the really interesting things that happened because of the tour was that. Michael and I were just trying to make sure that you know, basically, we could answer any question that was going to be thrown at us by people who were seeing these sites for the first time. And you know what yeah. it's like—you know, sometimes you can just get so close to a thing that you, you know, your view becomes maybe a little bit linear, and you don't uh, you don't see some of the things. Uh, to either side so we mm. were we were pulling in all this information so that we could answer any question and realizing that even our own interpretations had been colored by the way information is actually written down by academics um mm. and i don't mean that in a in a negative sense in the wrong any way, way no. um it, it's purely that people are giving you the raw information. So there's no flannel, there's no misleading going on. This is the raw information. And you can't help but interpret that, in you know, whichever way the the words hit you personally, you will have an interpretation of those words. And sometimes you need to take your personal interpretation and throw it out the window and go and read those words again. again. And that's what um, uh, what we've been faced with uh, recently is, say, oh, do you know what? I always thought this, and you read the information again, you think, oh, well, it could mean that, but actually, it could mean mm. this, or it could mean this, or it could mean this. And uh, I think, uh, is it reasonable to mention Wayland Smithy here, Mike?
0: Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the things that illuminated
1: that thought about compressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so because certainly, Wayland Smithy was the one for me. Uh, more yeah. than the others. Uh,
0: Anybody uh, familiar with Whalen Smithy? It's a uh, uh, well, it's a seven Cotswold um, long barrow uh, on the face of it. It's reconstructed. It's not far from Uf- Uffington White Horse. Yes, in fact, it's on the same hill as Uffington White Horse up um, there on
1: the Ridgeway. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, now on the Ridgeway. Yeah. The 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 thing about Whalen Smithy, this long barrow, is that it was built in. There were two phases. And it was originally a timber mortuary house. And what you see there now is a very impressive megalithic facade in front of an enormous uh, long barrow. And uh, and the thing is that when you read the raw information, so what they found, they, they, they found 14 burials that were interred when it was a timber mortuary house. So these 14 burials, it doesn't really change anything, but just for information, they were 11 men, two women and a child. And the carbon dating showed that the first burials date from between 3,590 BC to 3,555 BC. Now, my interpretation when I read that originally, and I'm talking about years ago, that the way I interpreted that was that these first burials happened over a 40-year period. And then the last burials were between 3580 BC and 3550 BC. BC. So that's over like a 25-year period. And now when I went back and reread that information, I realised that, no, that was entirely my interpretation. This is down to the carbon-14 dating is just telling us that as, that all we know is that these burials happened between 3590 and 3555 BC for the first set and 3580 to 3550 for mm-hmm. the later ones. That's just the carbon-14 dating. Now, you can pick between those two because they, the second set sits within the first set. So you could just as easily say from that information... It could be just as likely to be true that they all happened on the same day in pick a year, 3560 BC. uh, The carbon 14 dating is giving you a latitude, and we actually don't know when they happened within that. They could all these Hmm. people could have died and been buried on the same day. We don't know. It's such a good
0: point, Rupert, such a good point, and so well made. It's uh, amazing. We look at numbers and being, and this isn't, this is not a criticism. It's not pejorative in any way. It's the way evolution made us. Mm. But we are meaning-making machines. We are. We do it within (laughs) seconds. Yeah. We make a story out of something within seconds of uh, acquaintanceship with uh, fresh data.
1: It's amazing how we do it.
0: We can't help ourselves from doing it. Yeah, yeah, faces in the fire. Yeah, Um, uh, and that's the thing to beware. That's it. I think we've said what we need to say. That's the end of the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what? I think um, you made a lovely point, though, about, uh, you know, while we're still at Wayland smithy the the fact that when the stones were put up at Wayland smithy that was actually what was it? Two hundred years? Was it two hundred years after West Kennet? That's right. Yeah. Now you see that to me, which uh, you
0: know, which you you've got to have, you get your, your geography right here because at the other end, you know, at the bottom end of the Ridgeway, uh, Wayland Smithy is but ten yards off. <laughs> it's it's on the Ridgeway. Yes. And West Kennet is pretty much at the other end. Yeah. Uh, bar you know half a mile or so. Um. Yes. Yeah, so two hundred. 200 years it took to uh, the idea, it took to travel
1: up the uh, Ridgeway there. <laughs> but isn't it amazing? I mean, it, it could just as easily be, and we're certainly not the first people to to have suggested this, but uh, the fact that the huge megalithic facade at Wayland smithy was put up 200 years after the stones were going up at West Kennet, it's just possible that the people at Whalen smithy were doing uh, an homage. Uh, you yeah. Know, they, they, were, they were doing something in reverence to something that had been done by their ancestors a couple of hundred years before.
0: Which they weren't quite in touch with.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, who,
0: who, who knows? Who knows? Actually, I'll tell you what, it's not an example exactly, but if we backtrack to Orkney a bit... Mm i mean anybody that's any been to orkney and visited the prehistoric sites uh, i mean it, it is overwhelming um you, you you can't help but um, fall over them the the thing is you know that unless you have the information unless you have the data because of the way things have happened on orkney uh you could go to orkney and you you would see that the stone walling of an iron age broch can be indistinguishable from the stonework of a Neolithic building like, um, like Scarabray, yeah, Bray, yeah,
1: for, yeah, for yeah. example. Yeah,
0: You know, the, the Ness of Brog, uh, the current excavation, they're dealing with building built upon building over mm-hmm. um, hundreds of years. It's a thought occurred to me. It's worth bearing in mind that an Iron Age farmer picking up a, a stone axe from his land or, or walking round a, a, a mound a, the mound of a barrow on his land was essentially looking back in time as far as we do to him now
1: yes yeah it's a good <laughs> point it's a very good point
0: all that time gets compressed yeah i think the the way we can illustrate this better and and kind of tease this apart uh, <laughs> a, a bit and make it real is uh, having a talk about the the landscape around Avebury. uh-huh and uh, West Kennet in 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 particular yes so we have West Kennet West Kennet Long Barrow first human bones placed in the chamber what about 3000 uh, 3600 And 50 BC. Uh, Are you remembering that?
1: Or do you want me to look it up?
0: No, I see some numbers in front of me. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to make it sound as if I... I'm sorry. (laughs) No, carry on. Sorry, I thought you were groping. You just can't get the podcast. No, guest, you can't. Can you? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the, give me that date again. The first barrels at West Kennet? Around about 3,650. I don't want be- to divert you from your thinking, but do we know, because I'm going to be honest here, I know nothing. Uh, because East Kennet Long Barrow, which is actually yes. the, the largest long barrow in... Britain. which if it weren't for some trees you could see from west Kennet. yeah but the fact that it's on private land and blah 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 um but actually i don't know anything about it other than the fact that it's bigger than west Kennet. do we know anything about the burials there was it older it was was not
0: it... a thing off the top of my head anyway no okay uh no can't uh, can't help you there i don't even know who when what excavated it no
1: i don't i don't know anything no anyway sorry
0: but we go you walk up the hill there as I'm sure many of you have done, um, walk up the hill to West Kennet, and you're struck with uh, an amazing view because mm. uh, <laughs> the extraordinary thing in the landscape you can't escape is uh, Silbury Hill. Yeah, And then if you know the adjacency of things in the landscape there, um, you can all but see the site of the sanctuary. You can see pretty much the end uh, where that part of the ridgeway comes to. And of course, there's a thing called the West Kennet Avenue, which leads you over the hill and far, not far away, quite, um, you know, just a couple of miles. If that, is it a mile? I can't remember. To Avebury Henge. Yes. And you stand um, by the colossal stones at the entrance to uh, West Kennet. You think, wow, what an amazing megalithic landscape what were our ancestors up to wrong mm. none of that was there when west kennet was put up yeah none of it
1: yeah it you may have
0: seen a few uh, palisaded enclosures in the valley below but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the other stuff the the uh, the megalithic the stone circle the the uh, avenue stuff the sanctuary whether that was timber posts or whether there were uh, whether there was a stone c- circle there or not, none of it. Mm. The only thing that was existing at uh, Avebury at the time that uh, West Kennet Lang- Long went up was a little wooden house, yeah. um, which is um, the position of which is uh, <sighs> in the middle of what we now see as the southern stone circle
1: of Avebury. Yeah. 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 I don't know where to draw the line on this. <laughs> well, have a go. <laughs> it's it's the farm, isn't it? It's where they did they had their little little homestead in the middle.
0: Well, you know, do you know, around the little homestead in the middle was not a stone circle, but a stone square. It was a square. It was a square circle. Yeah. It was yes. So I don't know if the uh, um, the stone square was contemporary with the building, but uh, the stone square is certainly way older than the. Um, Uh, circles that uh, went up in the late Neolithic but here's the thing it wasn't until nearly a thousand years later Mm. a thousand years between West Kennet going up and Silbury Hill and Avebury and the Sanctuary and the Avenue
1: yeah a thousand years it's astonishing isn't it you know you think the difference between the Norman conquest and today yeah yeah it it uh, and we just we don't see that from standing in the landscape you just don't more get over
0: moreover you know the big stones that you see right at the entrance of West Kennet, the big blocking stones they went up pretty much around about the same time as Avery was being built yeah i e what you see now at West Kennet was not how it was when it was first built, mm the blocking stones simply weren't, weren't there i find it very interesting indeed that those huge sarsens at the entrance now which match quite well with some of the stones you'll see down at avebury yeah that those went up at the same time that avebury was uh, was being put up was it
1: a deliberate a deliberate alteration of focus who knows? I think they were trying to uh, – it was a bit like redecorating at home, really. You do the whole house, <laughs> don't you? I think they were just really <laughs> giving the whole landscape a new look. Mm. Um, it's, it's those kinds of timelines that I think, you know, uh, you know as we said, Gina, you, you don't get that impression at all from, from being in the landscape. And, and I think a, a really important point to make here – uh, we've made this analogy before uh, in in different ways, but the thing is you, you have to remember that uh, that many of the sites uh, in Britain were fully excavated a century ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even some of the later ones, 60 years ago, long before we had any of the modern technology of, you know, whether it's isotope analysis or carbon-14 or, or you know, whatever it may be that, okay, those uh, those techniques have been applied to places in in Wiltshire, but many of the sites that we know about have not been analysed in that way at all. And so if you take, you know, my, my pet one is always, it, let's have a look at Westminster Abbey. Now imagine that you're an archaeologist from 4,000 years in the future or 5,000 years in the future, whatever, and you're excavating Westminster Abbey, but with the technology at our disposal of 100 years ago or 60 years ago. So we don't have the isotope analysis and everything else. We are just uh, we're getting the data together that you would get from most of the textbooks you can go and buy today, okay? So Westminster Abbey, you're digging it up, and there's over 3,000 people who have been either buried or their burials... Um, uh, celebrated isn't the right word, you know what I mean, in Westminster Abbey. That's a lot of people. Now, Edward the Confessor was buried in there in 1066, and Laurence Olivier was buried in there in 1989. I know if you're just digging up bones and you've got no no other techniques to go by, you're just digging up bones, then you would have no idea at all that a 1,000 years separated those two burials. Yeah another good point and very well made that's uh,
0: that, that's an, another that's another strike one soskin <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but it's true though isn't it you know that if yeah. we applied that thinking to you know just talking about Avery and west Kennett, for example then yeah. uh, you know what you see in the landscape uh, would you would have no clue if it wasn't for the modern techniques that have given us that information yeah
0: yeah Megalithic building went on over a very long period and it changed vastly over that period. Mm. Here's here's an interesting way of looking at it. Britain's Neolithic landscape is is, is like a a massive museum without any organisation of the exhibits. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. yeah, you speak wise words, Obi-Wan. That is very really true. Yeah, but look, if if it was organised, if it was in a museum, if it was organised chronologically, the exhibits, I think, would be, probably be in two rooms. You know, there's the earlier bit and the later bit. <laughs> but the first first room, you'd have the barrows, curses, causeways, en- enclosures and stuff like that in the first room. Later, in the next room would be the, in the next room would be the circles and the hinges. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: and there'd be a bloody long walk between the two. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
1: Yeah, yeah. And on that bombshell, what? <laughs> it's such a huge cultural difference, isn't it? You know, and yet we yeah. see it all in one time frame, and it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is a point well made as well.
0: I hope you know. W- We've kind of made our point there, really, over and over
1: and over again. <laughs> you know, to put it succinctly, the point is really to be very careful about how how you interpret the data that you read. Gosh, and do you know what, Rupert, what? we haven't even mentioned
0: Stonehenge. No,
1: <laughs> no. Oh God.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, the, the obviously the same thing pertains with with Stonehenge. I mean, God, even stretching back to the Mesolithic, mm. we've got stuff
1: there. Yeah, it's you know what you you just throwing the cat amongst the pigeons and mentioning Stonehenge, which it was a bold thing to do there. Um, yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> but it's the <laughs> fact that uh, that when it comes to Stonehenge, more than any other site, I think that. Because it was actually built and developed over such a huge period of time that we don't really have any information to suggest that the people who put it in its later form had any idea whatsoever what the original builders were thinking. They just happened to be developing the same site.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, I think that's... uh, an important point as well that we we shouldn't assume that, that the meaning yeah. of something travels well yeah
0: yeah chinese whispers the 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 the, the reasons for the initial the initial impetus that uh, has a monument be built does not ne- necessarily travel well through time no every generation like the good meaning making machines story building machines that we are Mm. Unless they've got you know a really strong oral tradition, my yeah. word, that oral tradition would have to be watertight and strong for it to survive mm. in the absence
1: if that line was broken, meaning making machines rush in. yes, it is an interesting one you know we 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 made the analogy in in standing with stones actually, and it's just you've just reminded me of it again that oh. Uh, there was, uh, there is a. Uh, okay, I will say it. It was a church in Teddington in Southwest London.
0: Oh, that
1: yeah. uh, when it was built, it was Teddington almost became a city because this church was uh, was border on bordering on being a cathedral, but it mm. never happened. Um, anyway, it was a magnificent church. And it was eventually deconsecrated, and it is now very swanky apartments. <laughs> um, now, you think of that from an archaeological point of view, and how would that be interpreted when it was being excavated uh, in, in however many thousand years in the future? That what had been an actual temple And I know this is a minor digression, but it does irritate me when people still insist on calling things temples when they were probably axe markets. But but the point is that you've got somewhere that originally it was a a temple, for want of a better word, and now it is a series of apartments, quite a lot of apartments, each of which will contain the antiques or whatever that each of the individual (laughs) homeowners will... uh, (laughs) You know, we'll find personally pleasing. You're gonna. It's going to be an archaeologist's nightmare trying to unravel what that was all about.
0: Yeah, wonderful. (laughs) Well, how many times have we uh, beaten our dear listeners over the head uh, with this
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) this
0: this idea? What we learnt from travelling from one end of the country to the other. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I, th- I think uh, I think the point has been well well made several times. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, do you know what? Um, this part of the show has uh, has, uh, has lasted half an hour already. Has it already? We it has shoot. already. Yes, but, goodness but, gracious me! Better move on then. But, well, I think we probably better had. Hope you found that interesting. We yeah, certainly I, did.
1: Yeah, I hope so. If you found it boring, do let us know. <laughs> Well, maybe not.
0: So all of which brings us to question
1: time. Anything arisen this month, Rupert? Yes, indeed. We had a question from Susan Harrington in Bournemouth, who says, I recently saw a film about Bronze Age dolmens in Korea some of which are massive blocks of stone weighing hundreds of tonnes, sitting on very small, unimpressive supporting stones. Do you really think these huge stones were deliberately placed on the small stones? I can't help thinking that if you were going to the trouble of moving such huge stones, you would make the walls or supporting stones somewhat more impressive.
0: Yes, I, I think um, I think we both know exactly what Susan means. Mm. It has to be said, if you were walking past these Korean diamonds, you, you wouldn't notice that there were anything other than simple tumbled rocks. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. I, yeah. I think it's quite possible, if not likely, that they were in situ and people dug away the soil bit by bit, just packed the uh, the small stones along the edges as they dug, so the whole thing remained supported when they opened out the central burial space.
0: I have to agree there. I know they were quite capable of, of uh, in some instances, of heaving large rocks about, but it's a possibility that you've got to entertain whenever you look at massive um, uh, capstones, um, be it on barrows or... Um, what was the um, one in Ireland? What's uh, that huge one in Ireland? Uh, I remember us uh, as we were standing next to that. Yes, indeed,
1: it's the Browns Hill Dolmen. Browns Hill Dolmen, that's yeah. right. Um, and because um, they estimate that weighs about one hundred and fifty tons, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And I, I
0: seem to remember us musing whether that was uh, mm. the earth from that was dug out in situ, and and. Uh, The stones propping that up were sort
1: of edged in. See, the interesting thing about um, you know Susan mentioning the Korean dolmens specifically is that this these are dolmens in a particular region that she's talking about. Basically, it's at the bottom of it. It might not be a mountain, but it's certainly a very very rocky hill, and (laughs) uh, so it's possible that these rocks did just shear off and tumble down to, uh, you know, to the bottom of the hill. But the the, th- the thing that makes me think that, that that's quite likely is that there are other dolmens in Korea, Bronze Age dolmens, that look every bit as organised and smartly designed as any that we have in in Western Europe. I mean, there's one in particular in, in Korea that looks uh, just like Ah uh, Poulnebron in yeah. I declare um yeah. you know it's uh, uh they narrow section big slabs of stone which are just very, very neatly formed yeah. into a dolmen, so very, very different from these massive things with small stones underneath, you know I think because you know basically if if your dolmen is not designed to be an impressive thing, if it's really just to. Protect the remains of your dead, then all you need is enough space underneath the stone to inter people, don't you? So, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question, Susan. If you could move
0: a 200 tons capstan, then you maybe take a bit more effort and make it actually look a bit more impressive rather you would, than you? it looking a bit silly, really, on its little stumpy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know we're being uh, applying modern aesthetics or something like that but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah I think the point holds true just when you see a big one just think
1: hmm mm.
0: could that just be where it was from glaciation or what have you and uh, it was just dug out from underneath
1: yeah yeah
0: that's the sort of thing we probably will never know but
1: uh, anyway
0: I think we've made the point
1: don't I think you? we have good question Susan thank you very much Which brings us hurtling all the way to the moment you've all been waiting for. (laughs) Yes, it's Stonehead of the Month. month. (laughs) Who gets the gong this
0: month, Michael? This month's Stoney is Lawrence Abel for some lovely shots of sights around Scotland. So do go onto the community and uh, have a look at the sites he's visited. Well done, Excellent Lawrence. Excellent work, Mr. Abel. <laughs> and thank you for um, contributing your shots to the community. Indeed. All helps the wheels go around. <laughs> it certainly does, yeah, well done. So, which brings us to the uh, section we whimsically call Whimsy. <laughs> it's the picky bit, isn't it? It's the picky bit down to the nitty
1: Sort of gritty, where we pick things apart. It is the big bit. bit. Yes. Yes. Well, do you know what? This isn't funny. And what? I, uh, I know. And I'm not even putting on my grouchy hat. You're not being
0: funny and you're not putting on your grouchy hat. There are some people that have waded through however long this podcast has been just for this section so they can have a good laugh, so you can lighten their day, maybe their life. I don't know. But where are you going to take this now?
1: Well, well let's just hope that none of our listeners are quite that miserable that this would be making their lives. But yeah. But this, <laughs> this is really about how cautious we need to be when we read headlines.
0: Ah, that old chestnut. Mm.
1: So uh, tell me, Rupert, why is this uh, not deserving of the grouchy hat? Well, it's not deserving of the grouchy hat because the overall research is absolutely fabulous and we mustn't throw Neolithic babies out with stone baths. Um, No, nor their drinking (laughs) bottles. Indeed. The research comes from the Ukraine where an enormous Neolithic town called Maidenesk, Maidenetsk, has been excavated. And the layout is complex. Essentially, 3,000 houses. Wait, what? 3,000 houses? You are kidding me. 3,000 houses. It's... uh, it's, Neolithic? uh, Yeah, it's astonishing, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, can Uh, I? Hey, um... So these 3,000 houses surrounding large public meeting spaces, now some of these open, so they look like squares, Uh, they could have held thousands of people. Right. So um, what's the picky bit then? Uh, Well, the article was entitled, In Neolithic Ukraine big buildings hint at democratic assemblies. Oh,
0: right. Um, I think I remember this, but what's your point about
1: this? Well, I know I'm being super picky. Super picky. But how does a large public space suggest democracy? You know, you wouldn't point at Tiananmen (laughs) Square in Beijing and say that it was a centre for democratic discussion, would you? (laughs) Well, it made me laugh. (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, <laughs> but but also i think you have a point wow you see i i i dug a little deeper of course you did <laughs> well and reading the original research paper which is a phenomenal piece of work by the way there is not one single mention of Anything democratic. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) So I went back to the journal article I had first seen in Atlas Obscura. That's the one that said, in Neolithic Ukraine, big buildings, democratic assemblies. And there is a quote from the lead author of the paper, Robert Hoffman, an archaeologist at the Institute for Pre- and Proto-History at Kiel University in Germany. Proto-History? Proto-History, yes. Wow. Excellent. Um yes, well I suppose that's um that's the history that's uh it's kind of it's there but not really written down properly. The very beginnings of history, I I presume. Okay. That's a good word to have distinguished, actually. It, right. it is, but yeah, do you know what? New one on me as well. So um, sorry. For the interruption do carry it's all on. All right. Anyway, he said, this is Robert Hoffman, he said the unique spatial layout of the settlement plans suggest a unique social configuration. The living together of 10,000 plus or minus 5,000 people was only possible through democratic sequential decision-making processes made at different societal levels. Then the journalist writes what he means is that the large community at Medanitska relied on these civic centres in order to function. They were Neolithic negotiation rooms for all manner of prehistoric problems. Okay. Now, the thing is that the word democratic there, where John Hoffman says uh, that uh, was only possible through democratic sequential decision-making, the word democratic is in brackets. Right. Meaning that the journalist inserted the word himself either because it was his own interpretation of what John Hoffman was saying and he wanted to clarify, or that Robert Hoffman had actually said it in an earlier sentence that wasn't being quoted. So I say again, the published academic research paper holds no mention of democracy whatsoever. Um, So either the journalist misinterpreted, Or Robert Hoffman has a personal view of what the town layout means, which he sensibly didn't include in the paper because it's based on guesswork. Now, I know (laughs) that people often think we are being super picky about stuff like this. But the point is always that when you make a bold statement it impacts on the way people perceive and interpret all sorts of information. And it is way too easy to send people down blind alleys simply because you said something unsubstantiated, but with enough authority to be convincing. Some well, people call they, it pedantic. I call it attention <laughs> to detail. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, this is this is all so very true. And... Um, On that picky but decidedly (laughs) non-gratchy note, it's time to say goodbye. (laughs) But accept that. I mean, isn't it extraordinary? Isn't it lovely to feel that we are still bastions of, uh, of, of being sticklers for the truth in an age of fake news, conspiracy theories and everything? It's, and making a stand where it would be so easy to slip down the slippery slope of sloppy journalism. It,
1: is, it, is, it really is very, very true. And, and join
0: uh, the rest at the bottom of the heap.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, Good you know, it's us, a I tough job, but somebody's
0: <laughs> gone. To, to, do do it. to do it. <laughs> oh my God, isn't it true? And on that picky but decidedly non grouchy, what is it? Slightly grouchy note. Slightly non grouchy time- note, says. <laughs> <laughs> it is time to say goodbye. Goodbye, um, everybody Yes, uh, don't forget. If you're interested in becoming a patron of ours, do go to patreon.com forward slash the Prehistory Guys. Or if you want to contribute to us making it to the five thousand mark on YouTube, five thousand subscribers—that is—go over to YouTube slash C letter C slash the Prehistory Guys, <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, see what you can do. And if you haven't seen all the films that are there and all the other good stuff, yeah, um, loads um, of stuff, yeah. Book a night in, (laughs) open a bottle of wine, settle down. You'll enjoy yourselves. Good stuff. Bless you all for listening. Thank you so much. See you next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.